For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for men. Thank you very much. It's good to see you guys. If you could leave uh, uh, your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, we'll pray and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for this evening, and we thank you uh, for the opportunity we have to spend time in your word. Lord, we pray that as we explore the mysteries of the cross this evening, uh, that we become more aware that we're desperate for you, and that we need the cross in order to find glory. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was working at a church that had developed a relationship with a local school, and we were asked to speak at their assemblies. And I had already spoken at the school once, and uh, it must have gone pretty well because they asked me to come back and to speak at their big Easter assembly, and this was a big deal. Usually they would just have the kids sit on the floor, but they had pulled out stadium seating in the big auditorium. Okay, And they had a huge gospel choir that they were going to have for the Easter assembly. And they blocked off the whole afternoon, so I had like 25 minutes to speak. And to be honest, I was a little bit nervous. And because of the way that the room was configured with the stadium seating, the kids, they just filed right in and they walked directly past me. So it felt a little bit like the spotlight was on. Uh, So I was nervous and they start walking in. And the first kid walks in and he looks up at me and he goes, yes. And I start to feel a little bit better about myself. And then a few more kids walk in and the kid goes, awesome. And some more come in, and more of the same. You know, kids are coming in, and they're looking up, and they go, oh, yeah. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, I must have made a real impression with these kids. Well, the last couple of kids start straggling in, and this, this kid looks up and goes, all right, we've got real seats today. Well, needless to say, my moment of glory was short-lived. But I think all of us want to experience glory. We all want to be significant. We want to be blessed in life. And a lot of us think that, that we'll, be, we'll receive this glory through the big things in life, like jobs or our bank balances. Or sometimes we think we'll receive these things in life through little things, like school assemblies and being liked by people. And this raises a good question for us. Where do you seek glory? What are the things that you hope will bring you blessing and and goodness in life? In our passage today, Jesus says some things that seem backwards. First, Jesus connects glory with his death on the cross. And then, when his disciples, when they ask for glory, bypassing the cross, Jesus asks them if they can drink from his cup or be baptized By his baptism. I don't know what that means. And finally, Jesus says that if we want to be great, we've got to be a servant to all. And I think that it's worth exploring, spending some time tonight and exploring what does Jesus mean with these words when he's talking about glory and the cross. Well, before we look at today's passage, let's just take a moment and see a theme that has developed in Mark's gospel so far. 
Up to this point in the gospel, Mark has argued that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God and that Jesus is the Messiah who will be king over this kingdom. Right at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus declares, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus proceeds to heal people and to perform miracles, because Jesus had power over nature. He was the king. And Jesus challenged the forces of evil, casting out demons, Because Jesus had power over Satan. Because Jesus was the king. And Jesus even promised that he could forgive sins. Something that only God could do. Because Jesus had power over sin. He was the king. Jesus' actions point to the kingdom of God breaking into history. And he is at the center of God's kingdom activity. And the first half of Mark, it kind of climaxes in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter declares, you are the Christ. It's into this wider context of Jesus establishing himself as the Messiah, the Christ, the King, over God's kingdom that we look at today's passage. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Verses 32 to 45. And and the passage begins with a journey to Jerusalem. In verse 32, we read that they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And they were also frightened. And, And Jesus takes the twelve again and he begins to tell them about what's going to happen to him. See, Jesus was leading his followers to Jerusalem. And they had very good reason to be amazed and frightened. Because Jerusalem was right at the center of the Jewish religious world. That's where the temple was. And Jerusalem was also the capital city for the Jewish people. Jews from all over the world would look to Jerusalem as the place where God would make them great again. And most importantly, Jerusalem was where the promised Messiah, the king, would rule from. So it would be logical to think that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to lay claim to the throne. It looks like Jesus is on the path to glory, to be a king. And so Jesus' words in verses 33 to 34 are shocking. Jesus says, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him, and they'll spit on him, and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus isn't going to Jerusalem to be crowned an earthly king, but to be killed. And this is completely backwards. Kings kings don't plan to go somewhere to be killed. But this is something that Jesus has anticipated. Mark shows that Jesus already knows where his journey is going to end. Look with me quickly. Turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark 8, 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And guess what? At least seven other times that I could count, just looking through this last week, Mark includes Jesus' predictions about his death. 
Jesus knows exactly where he's going and what he will do once he arrives in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem so that he might die on a cross. In fact, the context of the whole of Mark's gospel is that Jesus' death is necessary because it's through Jesus dying that we can access this kingdom of God that's revealed in the first half of Mark. Jesus' whole mission on earth, miracles, healings, teachings, all of it was pointing him towards the cross. The cross is the inescapable central message of the Christian faith. It's the inescapable central message of the Bible. The whole of the Old Testament, all of the themes of the Old Testament point to the cross. So in the Old Testament we have death being the penalty for sin. God's promises with his people, the temple and the priesthood, the promise that that God would send his suffering servant to take away the sins of the people. All of this points to the cross because the cross is the central message of the Bible. And this is why every single one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the theme of their gospel, their good news, always comes to the cross. Paul, Peter, James, John, the writers of the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, they all focus on the cross because the cross is the defining feature of the Christian faith. And so if you want to be a Christian, you have to come face to face with the cross. And I think that we do need to be aware of false gospels, false good news messages that try to take the cross out of Christianity. And it's not new. They, they, they look at the mess of the cross and, and it seems off-putting. And so as a result, there's some people who are happy to take Jesus, but just leave out the cross. And this is not new. Thomas Jefferson was uh, a, a statesman and a leading thinker in the 18th century. He was also the third president of the United States. And uh, he famously penned the Jefferson Bible. And, and Jeff, Jefferson was quite happy with following Jesus. But he didn't really believe in all the miracles. And he thought that the cross was just a barbaric historical oddity. So he took a copy of the New Testament and he chopped it up. And all that he was left with were a few of Jesus' moral teachings taken out of context. Jefferson constructed a Jesus of his liking. But in doing so, he missed the point of who Jesus was. To lose the cross is to miss out on what Jesus' mission was all about. My wife and I have three little boys. And our oldest son, Thomas, is seven. And we recently, over the holidays, did a little trip to the library. And uh, Thomas checks out his own books under our supervision. Well, there wasn't much supervision this time. I don't know how it missed the gap, but he checked out a book. It was a kid's book on World War II. And it was remarkably graphic. It had details of battles and the cost of battle. It had specifics about the evil atrocities of war. And Emma and I were a little bit stuck with what to do because we felt that it was just a bit too much for our seven-year-old. Well, we ended up taking the book back when he wasn't looking. But imagine if we just tried to sanitize the book. 
that we said, no, it's important that you learn about World War II, son. But in, in, instead of uh, giving them book, the book, we marked out all the bits with battles and bloodshed. If we left in the articles about ration cards and victory gardens and eventually victory parades, but what if we tore out the two-page spread on D-Day? Would my son have an idea about what made World War II significant? No, he wouldn't. Because D-Day is where the grime of war and the glory of liberation met. To lose the cross is to miss out on what Jesus was all about. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be a king. But Jesus' path to glory, his kingdom would be fought for and won at the cross. Jesus' destination was humiliation, not acclaim. His goal was to suffer and die, to be mocked, to endure the wrath of God. And the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross was because of our sin. Jesus was a king who fought for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death. It was on the cross that Jesus would fight for us. He was winning glory for his people from his enemies. And because of this cross... We can be so thankful. And we need to have the cross be the center of our lives. Any spiritual victory you hope to have over sin in your life has to be rooted in what Jesus did at the cross. Any hope that you have that good will win against evil in this world It has to be based on what Jesus did on the cross and all of the blessings that we hope to have from life. Any hope that you have in real glory needs to find its source in what Jesus did at the cross because it's at the cross that Jesus paid the price for sin and death so that we could experience God's blessing. The cross is the central message of the Christian faith and it should be the destination of all of our spiritual endeavors. But James and John, they hear Jesus talking about his death, and they just skip right over what Jesus is saying. They go straight past the cross onto glory. And they make this audacious request. They say, will you give us whatever we want? And Jesus says, well, what do you want? And they said, well, we want to sit at your right and your left in your glory. And by the way, this is not just a request to sit physically next to Jesus, to be closer to him physically. They're already with him. What they want is to get close to the glory. Now, I can imagine that James and John, they think, well, you know, we're pretty hot stuff. I mean, we deserve to be elevated above everyone else because Jesus chose us to be disciples. And we got to witness his transfiguration where Jesus took James and John and Peter and he took them up to the top of a mountain. And he showed them his glory. And so it's understandable that they would want seats next to Jesus in his glory. They wanted to be elevated above the other disciples. To have increased power and status and favor. James and John's requests reveal their hearts. Their pride and their ambition are taking over. 
And the context of this request makes it all the more ugly. James and John are asking for an upgrade exactly at the time when Jesus is talking about how he will be brought low, how he will be mocked and spat upon and whipped to the point of death and then eventually killed. James and John try to bypass the cross and it's pure vanity. It's pure pride. And if you skip down to verse 41, you can see the response of the other disciples. Verse 41 says, When the ten heard it, they, began, they became indignant against James and John. Interestingly, all the English translations that we have, they actually clean up the original Greek in this, this text. In the Greek, verse 41 reads this way. It says, The ten heard this, and they led themselves to be indignant. It's reflexive. The ten disciples caused themselves to become angry. They worked themselves up. The ten disciples were just, just driving themselves to anger. And indignancy, it's more than just angry. It's anger that comes from a sense of moral righteousness. It's anger that's aroused by something that's perceived as an indignity. Because the other ten disciples realize exactly what James and John intend by this request. By asking to be put at Jesus' right and left, James and John are asking to be put above the other ten. And it's funny. Through their indignation, the ten reveal their pride too. The other disciples are indignant. Because their status is now being threatened and their pride is wounded. The other ten, they take the moral high ground. How dare James and John? They mutter. Can you just imagine them muttering that? How dare them? And so they're equally guilty of letting pride rise up. And and you know what? This isn't a new fight. Back in chapter 9, verse 34, the disciples were already arguing over which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Their fight is fueled by pride. And this isn't foreign to us, is it? Pride is that sense in each of us that we deserve better than we get. It's that undue self-focus where our affections and our attentions are focused on our needs, bringing glory to ourselves. So pride can rise up in us in lots of different ways. I can be outwardly prideful about my possessions or my career or my education or my family or my background. And the focus is really always on me. I become proud of my possessions because I think somehow they show off my value. Look, there's my value. See the car out there? That's my value right there. I might be proud of my career or my education because it highlights my status. Or I might be really proud of my family because it highlights how blessed I am and how blessed you aren't. And when these things disappear, I'm equally self-focused. Only this time it's wallowing in self-pity. I worry about losing possessions or my job because that equals a loss in value or status. I mean, pride can express itself in lots of different ways. But the root of pride is always an undue concern for myself, that I deserve better, that I'm better than the others 
because of something good in me. And pride's always out of step with the cross. When our pride swells up, it always comes into conflict with the cross. Because the cross is where Jesus hopes to make us right in the eyes of God. But pride, pride says that I deserve to be blessed. I deserve to be valued and held in high esteem by God and everyone else too. Because I'm a good person. I deserve God's blessing. I'm a good person. I deserve God's blessing. I go to church. Not many people nowadays do. I do. I deserve God's blessing. I deserve God's blessing because I'm bright enough or I'm likable enough. And so so pride is ultimately about self-justification. It's me that justifies me. Me and my actions and my good. That's what makes me right. I'm doing okay. I'm good enough. I'm sorted. I don't need any help. But the problem is is that we're sinful and we're not good enough because God's standard is perfection. And so we're not good enough to justify ourselves before God. So attempts at self-justification are just acts of vainglory. They're acts of pride. But the good news is that the cure for pride is the cross. It's at the cross that we come face to face with our sin. Guess what? My sin, your sin, it is so bad that Jesus needed to die for it. Because the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And in the cross, we realize that we can't justify ourselves, but we need God to fight for us. But you know what also? At the cross, we get sweet relief that there is now no longer condemnation in Jesus because he's taken the full penalty of our sin on himself. We we come before God blameless, not because we're able to justify ourselves, but because Jesus justified us through the cross. And knowing about this about the cross should make us humble. I have a friend of mine who is an emergency room doctor. He's an apprentice at, at our church. And I like to quiz him over lunchtime about his job. And, and I asked him one time, I said, do you get many unbearable people in the emergency room? You must get some nutters in there, don't you? And uh, he said, you know, people sometimes can be loud and obnoxious in, in, in A&E, particularly if they've been drinking. But he said, you know, in life or death situations, patients are remarkably humble. I said, really? And he said, yeah, you know, um, when people know that their only hope for healing or a cure is in the hands of the doctor, they're remarkably humble towards us. The cross is the cure for pride because Jesus' blood is the only thing that will justify us before God. Earlsfield Church, abandon prideful pursuits. Turn to Jesus. He's the only source of true blessing. He's the only one who can make us right before God. So far we've seen that Jesus understood that his glory was to be found at the cross. James and John, they tried to bypass the cross and go straight for the glory. And now it's worth looking at Jesus' response. James and John, they ask Jesus to be at his right and left side in glory. And Jesus responds in verses 38 to 39. 
And he says, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism which I am, with which I am baptized? And they said, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I'm baptized, you will be baptized. When Jesus' disciples asked Jesus to share with him his glory, Jesus speaks about his cup and his baptism. And both of these are symbols for how Jesus' disciples will access his glory, which is one at the cross. So let's first look at this idea of the cup. It's, it's a funny thing. In Scripture, the cup is used as a metaphor in, in lots and lots of places, but it has two equal and opposite meanings. In some places, the cup signifies God's blessing. So Psalm 23, verse 5, My cup overflows with goodness from the Lord. Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord gives a cup of provision and security. And also Mark 14, verse 23, The cup is the sign of the new covenant at the Last Supper, the promise of the coming renewal of all things. But in other places, the cup signifies God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, there's a whole section about the wrath of God being poured out onto the nations. In Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 32, those who drink of the cup of wrath will endure scorn and derision. And also in Mark, In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus asked God that if it is his will, that the cup would be taken from him before he goes to the cross. It's at the cross where these two meanings of the cup come together. God's blessing and God's wrath. They merge at the cross. And you've got to maybe wonder, how? How exactly does Jesus' dying connect both with God's wrath and with me experiencing the blessing of God's kingdom. Maybe we struggle to see how this adds up. Well, imagine that there's a a giant celestial balance sheet. And on one side of the ledger is Jesus. And on the other side of the ledger is you and me, humanity. On our side, we see that we're sinful. That we've fallen away from God's standard, which is perfection. We see that that our sin deserves death. And then it also, in turn, it deserves God's wrath. That's on our side of the ledger. On Jesus' side of the ledger, we see that he was an absolutely perfect and holy person. That he offered us life. John 10.10, that you might have life and life to the full. And that he also offers us eternal peace and grace and blessing. That glory that we've been talking about. Well, at the cross, a great exchange takes place. Jesus takes our sin. And he also takes the death that we deserve in the wrath of God. And in turn, we receive from him his perfect and holy record. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see you and me, but he sees Jesus and his perfect record. And as a result, we're given life and blessing and goodness. God's plan from the very beginning was that Jesus might be our substitute. That he would be the final sacrifice. That he'd be mocked so that we might be esteemed by God. That he would be flogged so that we might be healed. That he would be spat upon. So that we might regain our humanity. This is all God's plan from the very beginning. God's blessing is imputed. It's put upon us. 
we drink from the cup of glory, the cup of blessing, because God's wrath is put upon Jesus. He drinks the cup of wrath. And along with the cup, Jesus also says that the disciples will be baptized with his baptism. And and you know, baptism here carries multiple meanings. If you look at five commentaries, they'll tell you five different meanings for baptism here. And I want to just focus on two that apply to our text. Earlier in Mark, John appeared. John the Baptist appeared. And he was baptizing in the wilderness. And he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was baptized by John. And it says in Mark chapter 1 verse 4 that Jesus was baptized into a baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. To know God's glory, we need to share in His baptism. We need to come repentant, confessing our sins. We need to come asking for forgiveness. When a person is baptized, it symbolizes the cleansing from sin that we have and, and that we received from Jesus when he died for us. And so we need to turn from sin and we need to ask for forgiveness. So that our, the idea there is that, that baptism represents that turning from sin. But baptism also symbolizes dying and rising from the dead. So when a believer is baptized, it's symbolic of their old life being over. They're no longer who they were, and now they've started a new life with Christ. And many scholars believe that Jesus was making a prophetic statement here, both with the cup and baptism, that James and John would eventually become martyrs, that they would stop living for themselves, and that they would follow Jesus with the rest of their lives. The way that you can receive glory, blessing, grace, God's unmerited favor, is to respond to the cross, to repent from your sin, to turn away from sin, to ask God to forgive you, and then to stop living for yourself and to live for Christ. Do you want to know true glory? In verses 42 to 45, Jesus outlines basically the two paths you can take. There there are two ways that people pursue glory. And one way is pretty familiar to us. It's the way of the world. In verse 42, Jesus acknowledges that the world seeks after glory. And they do this by lording authority over one another. And they barter and they steal in the currencies of pride and status and power. But Jesus said in verse 43, it shall not be so amongst you. What Jesus is saying is that those who repent of their sin, that they believe that their salvation is only found in the cross, that they're called to no longer live for themselves, but to be a servant to all. It's Commission Sunday. And you know, one of the things I love about this outfit, uh, we're not completely sorted, are we? Uh, But one thing I love about Commission is that this network of churches, this family of churches, has a single-minded obsession with serving Christ and His kingdom. And, and, you know, I came from the States where there are plenty of impressive churches. And and they look more like palaces. And, And their preachers, they get padded expense accounts along with the job. I love that this network of churches doesn't have palaces. 
that we don't have padded expense accounts, but rather that our legacy will be churches that are planted throughout London, that we'll spend our glory on God's kingdom. And Jesus' life is our model. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you want glory, hear the words of Jesus, which are calling us to make the cross the center of our lives. Lay down your pride. And this will mean turning from sin and believing that we can receive every blessing from Jesus through his sacrifice on the cross. Because glory is not found in a life focused on ourselves. But true glory is found when we're changed by Jesus and what he did on the cross. When we recognize that he gave his life for many. Praise and glory be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this section of scripture that lets us know that the cross was your plan. Lord, we pray that we might put down our pride and that we would recognize the cross as the only place of true blessing. We thank you that on the cross, Jesus traded our record for his, and as a result, we receive glory and we receive blessing. And we pray, God, that we would live lives as servants, humble for you. Amen. Well, I don't know what a padded expenses account is, but I do know with greater clarity now um, of the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. We're going to sing of that now. An amazing uh, story is a narrative uh, of this last final hymn. But just turn, if you can, to uh, the chorus. This, the power of the cross, that Christ became sin for us. That, that great exchange that we've just heard about took the blame, bore the wrath. And therefore we can stand and praise be to God that we can stand forgiven at the cross. Let's stand and sing together. Mm-hmm.